0: Good morning, good morning. Thank you Steve, welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. New system, new volume. Uh, It is uh, September 25th, 2019. We will gather next uh, week with Dr. Ovidio Bermudez, who's a nationally recognized eating disorder specialist um, as our Grand Rounds series continues. It's a lot going on at this time of year, so uh, hopefully you saw uh, on the circuit that there is a resident story slam to be taking place at the Hotel Coolidge and White River Junction on October 13th. Um, this is led by our own Seb Falek, who I don't see in the room, but um, it does require some pre-registration. We'll send around the link uh, again uh, to to those who might be interested in linking and getting a free ticket. Don't worry, it's not a it's not a cost, but help support our residents in their uh, narrative merida, narrative medicine approach. That's on the thirteenth. Uh, other reminders were up there, but it is also be, it is also Dartmouth Hitchcock um, Service Club season. And uh, last night was the first of of four uh, special service club dinners for those who are at Milestones and above, and hopefully those who want to take advantage of those will take advantage of those. We have many special uh, celebrations, um, but of particular note, um, two former, it's appropriate, given Dr. Bell's presence here, two uh, former uh, PICU nurses, uh, it's hard to imagine, uh, are celebrating uh, 25 and above years uh, of service. Uh, but as I think that my son is 20 and both of them tried to feed him in the PICU 20 years ago, it's, it's, it's believable. One is not here with us, but um, when you see her and we will have a ceremony up in the clinic sometime soon, uh, Amy Moynihan is celebrating 25 years. You can talk that. And another milestone who is in the room, so uh, another PICU nurse who is now in research, Dean Jarvis, come on down. 30, 30 years.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, um, Many more celebrations, too, for others who are at um, earlier milestones. But it is our pleasure and Dr. Nat Shalene's pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Bell, our Grand Round Speaker from our neighbor to the north, and Shalene.
1: So it is absolutely a pleasure to welcome Dr. Rebecca Bell. I met her when she was a resident and I was a critical care fellow. I was quite sure she was a fourth year doing some kind of special elective, but she reminds me she was a second year. Um, But she was just that good already. Um, So you know how we all have to like scrape together our awards? I'm like digging into, like, what did I win in the sixth grade so I can like Put that on my CV. She has more than 20 awards and honors and most of them for excellence in teaching and she's been an excellent teacher. She's not only a fantastic critical care doctor, but she has turned this gift towards advocacy. Um, Starting innocently with a blog trying to inform the public about vaccines and their importance. Um, It's really blossomed into uh, a really strong career in advocacy to the point where in 2018, she won the Green Mountain Pediatrician of the Year Award, which for a critical care doctor is very hard to do, and in 2019, won the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics um, Advocacy Award, which is, I'm sure you know, a big deal. So, I am proud to call her a colleague and a friend, and I'm happy to hear you talk today. So, thank you for coming.
2: All right, thanks for having me this volume on? Ah. ah, no. All right, how's the volume? Good? Uh, no, no, I don't think. <laughs> uh, He said just to hit the mute button, it should. Oh, that's, yeah.
1: Okay. See that. Let's see what All right, this is better? Yeah. I'll use
2: this one. Okay, great. That's fine. <clears throat> um, I, I am so happy to be here, and I reminded Shalene last night that um, when I applied to fellowship in, in pediatric critical care, one of the things I talked about in my essay was her. So she was definitely an inspiration. Um, so I am going to jump right in. Um, I have no conflicts of interest to disclose, and I'm going to talk about um, – <clears throat> gun violence prevention, mostly focusing on what we see in Vermont and New Hampshire, which is really youth suicide, um, but talk a little bit, too, about firearm assault and unintentional shootings, and then really get to, to prevent prevention efforts. Um, I know that you had a grand rounds on firearm safety back in January, and I watched it, and it's excellent. Um, and so I'm not going to repeat a lot of that information, but really complement that talk. Um, I, I have been active in a lot of the um, legislative work done in Vermont um, in the past couple of years, and so I'm going to use some examples of what I've worked on to, to sort of inform this discussion a bit and then also talk about some cases that, you know, that I've seen as an intensivist. All right, so I'm going to start with with you, Suicide. Um, and. And what's important, both in when we talk about gun violence prevention in general, whether it's suicide or or assault, is that um, this comes up a lot, this inevitability myth. And this is where we have a hard time even discussing prevention efforts. Um, So this is a Pew Research poll. Um, This is a national poll. The majority of the public, this includes lawmakers. Believe that the the gun doesn't really make a difference. So they really believe if someone was going to hurt themselves or hurt somebody else, doesn't matter um, if if there was a gun involved or not. Um, I did uh, as I just walked into the lobby, I, I saw somebody um, walking out um, with a T-shirt just now um, that said, you know, if guns kill people, then why don't we we should also, we should ban a ballpoint, pens, and spoons. And, you know, as physicians, it's like, you know, we don't, we don't see those injuries or deaths. So this is, I mean, it's so common that I just saw someone wearing a t-shirt about this um, minutes ago. So, so this is, this is where, this is where we have to start. And so this is like, this is sort of an uphill battle that we need to convince people that the literature shows us that it does matter if a firearm is involved. Okay, so let's start just by talking about suicide. So this is data, this is 15 years, last 15 years we have data for. This is youth suicide, so 18 years old and younger. Um, And what you'll notice that's so striking about New England is that Vermont really stands out as having one of the higher suicide rates in, youth suicide rates in the country, um, adults as well. Uh, New Hampshire, Maine, about average. And then we have um, our neighbors, New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, new jersey have actually not just in the lowest categories but they have the lowest suicide rates in the country um so what you know what's sort of going on in in northern new england Um, and when you pull out so this is all suicides when you pull out just firearms um, this is what the map looks like and when you compare those two maps so the top is is use suicide by firearm, the bottom is all methods, and you see that the maps look very similar. So when you say, well, why why is there a difference between states, um, rates in different states, the, the firearm piece is really, is really driving the disparity here. Um, and so this is a study looking at, um, this is not youth data, but just all data, where researchers took, Um, the populations in the highest gun-owning states and the lowest gun-owning states and had similar populations, and then they looked at at their suicide numbers. So what you can see, which is not surprising, is that firearm suicide is higher in the states that have high gun ownership. That makes sense. If the inevitability myth were to be true, right, so if it were true that if someone – um, was going to kill themselves, it wouldn't matter if a firearm was accessible or not, then what you would expect to see is that the states with low firearm ownership would have a higher non-firearm suicide death rate, right? And they're actually the same. So if you look at those numbers and compare, um, compare the non-firearm suicide rates, they're essentially the same. So, but their overall suicide rates are double, you know, in both men and women, and that is really because of of the firearm suicide piece of that. So, simply put, where there are more guns, there are more suicides. So now, if we, we want to look just at youth, this was a study that came out earlier this year, um, and a really helpful one for me when I um, was te- have been testifying, um, because you know, one thing we hear often is well. Okay, you look at that. I show them the map, that CDC map, and they say, "Ah, oh, it's, like, cold in Vermont <laughs> and New Hampshire and Maine, and, like, it's, it's rural and isolating, and people, just, like, kids are just more depressed. Like, that's the reason. Kids are way more depressed. Um, <clears throat> so this study was really helpful because this actually looked at, like, what, what do we think would actually correlate really well with suicide death rates? And so they looked at the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. So they looked at Youth Risk Behavior Survey results over the last 15 years, uh, or 10 years, combined it together, um, averaged it, and they picked the three questions you would think would be most uh, would, would correlate the best with youth suicide rates. So youth reported rates of severe depression, youth reported rates of suicidal planning, and youth reported rates of suicide attempts. Right. So. You would think at the state level that states that had a higher number of youth reporting in the positive for those things would have a higher rate of suicide deaths. Not so. So to orient you to this table, this first column um, is youth suicide death rates. So Alaska at the top, our, you know our neighbors in Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey at the very, very bottom, and then the three columns, the far columns are those questions that I mentioned. So rates of depression, rates of suicidal planning, rates of suicide attempt. And they do not correlate with the death rate at all. Vermont, in particular, stands out as having the lowest rates of um, reported suicide um, suicide attempts and depression um, and one of the lowest for suicidal planning. Yet it's ranked sort of in the middle above average for suicide death rates. Then you look down at our, um, you know, southern New England um, neighbors, and they have much higher rates. So more of their youth are saying, um, talking about, you know, reporting yes for depression, yes for uh, suicidal planning, yes for suicide rates. Um, So those numbers really don't correlate at all. But what does is the second column, which is household gun ownership. So if you want to pick out the states, and if you look back, remember back at the map I showed, the states that have the highest suicide death rates among young people are not the states where the youth are saying, uh, I am depressed, I am thinking about suicide, and I have attempted suicide. It's not those states. It's the states that just have the highest gun ownership. And then when you look at individuals, um, the next thing people say is, "Okay, so maybe that's true at the state level. But on the individual level, um, a common myth is, well, if somebody used a gun to attempt suicide, that person was really intent on dying, right? They must have been. This This is what sort of makes sense in people's minds. So if you compare somebody who use a gun in a suicide attempt to someone who um, had a um, self-poisoning, so an intentional ingestion in a suicide attempt. Um, Really, the person who used a gun, you would think that they are more intent on dying. They really meant it. Um, And what researchers found is actually the opposite. So when you compare those two groups, those who use a firearm are actually doing so more impulsively. They've spent a shorter amount of time thinking and planning this, um, they're less likely to leave a suicide note, and they're less likely to have a history of depression to be um, seen by a mental health professional. They are more likely to have a history of, say, getting into a fight. Um, So they are more likely to have a history of impulsive behavior, but not necessarily the risk factors we generally think about when we think about suicide. Um, and it's important to remember that 90% of people who survive a near-lethal suicide attempt do not go on to later die by suicide. This, isn't, this is long-term decades follow-up. So again, when people, you know, when you're, when you're working towards prevent, prevention efforts, you'll hear a lot, um, you'll hear people say, well, okay, maybe you'll prevent them in that moment from dying by suicide, but they're just gonna go on to die by suicide. And that is really not the case. Um, <clears throat> and most young people who attempt suicide do so around um, a temporary crisis. And what is a temporary crisis to a young person um, is in the moment to them very serious, but, you know, in retrospect, not, right? Um, so a fight with a parent, a, break, a you know, romantic breakup, something happened at school, um, a bad test grade those types of things. And we know when, you know, I, we're, we're, we work in the PICU and we take care of, I take care of a lot of um, um, young people who've made suicide attempts. And when you talk to them once they're better and ask them what happened, you know, what they will say is, I was really, really, really upset. That's the most common thing I hear. I was really upset and um, I was feeling a lot of pain and I wanted the pain to stop. And then they'll say, uh, I was picking out my you know, college courses for next year. I'm really excited about my job this summer. Like it doesn't make sense sometimes. Um, uh, and so <laughs> keeping people safe during a suicidal crisis is really, really important and can save lives. Um, this is really obvious to us um, but those who attempt suicide with a firearm almost always die. Those who survive have horrible morbidity. I've taken care of one patient who survived a suicide attempt with a, uh, with a firearm, and you can imagine um, the, the morbidity associated with that is, is really intense. Um, and when we think about which adolescents are at risk um, for firearm suicide and who should we be screening for access to firearms, um, especially knowing it's not necessarily the kids who have been already been brought to the attention of mental health professionals. They're not necessarily the kids that are telling you that they're thinking about suicide or that they're depressed. They're young people who um, have access to firearms who may ha- get upset that's like pretty much all adolescents, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I think there's a good argument here that we should just be regularly screening all young people. I mean, we don't know when they're gonna have a crisis. And, and our job, I think, is to create an environment of safety so that when a crisis like this occurs, they're, they are as safe as possible. When I talk about this issue, At the State House, I oftentimes talk about how much we would love to protect kids from experiencing any type of crisis, right? But we cannot prevent them um, from having a fight with a friend, having a breakup, but we can prevent them from dying during one of these crises, right? We can create an environment of safety. So I'm going to talk, I'm going to use a waiting period for firearm purchase as an example here. Um, of how we can use what we know about suicide and what we know about access to firearms and and that link of impulsivity, access to firearms and a temporary crisis um, to talk about this issue with lawmakers. So, um, last year I worked on a waiting period bill um, that was a lot of work, it made it through the uh, legislature, was vetoed by our governor. Same thing with New Hampshire Waiting period bill was was just um, recently vetoed. I think in both cases we don't have the votes to to override the vetoes. Um, so so I'm using this as an example because it's going to come up again in both of our states. So it's so it's helpful to think about what we know about suicide and, and how we can talk about this. Um, So this is um, one of the graphics I used during my testimony to talk about why something like a waiting period is helpful and why means restriction is helpful. So when you um, make a lethal method less accessible, you can really save lives. So um, there are two things that happen. Um, Either the attempt is delayed, um, and that actually happens more more often than you would think. So, uh, you know, a young person... Something happens at school, they get really upset, they go home, they say, I'm gonna shoot themselves. They go to get the gun, it's totally locked up, they can't get it, and then they're like, well, that was my plan, now I don't have a plan. Um, That really does happen a lot. Um, Or someone goes to a gun shop to buy a firearm, Uh, they say, great, you can come back in three days and get it. Things change in that period of time. The other thing that could happen is that they use another method, so method substitution by definition, any other method is gonna be less lethal than a firearm, right? Um, and we, you know, when we talk about lethality, we have to be really specific about what we're talking about. We're talking about irreversibility, but we're also talking about things like the ability to abort mid-attempt, which again, speaks to, um, speaks to the temporary, what can be a temporary, real temporary crisis in people. If, if the ability to abort mid-attempt really, really affects the lethality, If people if people change their minds mid attempt and whether or not they can they can kind of take that back, Um, so so that so that's kind of the idea around something like a waiting period is that we're talking about these this period of a suicidal crisis and protecting people during that suicidal crisis. Um, So I'm going to talk. I'm actually going to play a really short clip and. I was a little bit hesitant to play this because there's a there's a little bit of my testimony in this clip, and I thought, oh, my voice is so annoying. I I don't want to subject them to it, and then I'm like, they're going to be listening to my voice for an hour, so it's fine. Um, But I think there are there are two things that I find to be helpful with this clip. One is um, you can hear me actually referring to basically referring to these studies that I just talked about. So I think it's helpful to think about. As, as medical professionals, how do we, like, absorb the literature and then take that in, and talk about that in a way that people can understand? Um, so thinking about how you might do that. But really what I want you to hear is this story from these parents because it's going to sound very familiar to you. And hopefully the sound is going to be good and not too loud or anything. Let's see. Sure.
1: It's tragically.
2: Thank <laughs> So it's very rare um, that families are willing to put themselves out there and to talk about um, suicide in their family um, uh, this these parents were incredible I mean they actually talked about it in in their son's obituary um, and it, it really became national news um, and it you know I was really heartbroken for them that this this was vetoed um, because they really put their heart and soul and really put themselves out there and you can imagine. Um, they're the perfect example of why you don't read internet comments. Um, but but people said some really cruel things to them. Um, but what can be really powerful is is when we have the data and the literature. And the year before, I talked a lot about this to the to the state state lawmakers. Oftentimes, some people got it, and some people were like, "Yeah, I mean, but really, does this really happen?" And then when you have a family who is willing to actually talk about it. Um, I think it, it's it's all that more powerful um so moving on to firearm assaults again talking about this inevitability piece or or that um the that person's t shirt it, it does matter if i mean it it's it does matter if there's a firearm um I took care of a seventeen year old um who went to a house party and um an eighteen year old had brought a firearm um a handgun from his home to the party and um the 17-year-old like, took that kid's beer, and um, and the 18-year-old shot him, and his friend killed his friend, and the patient that I took care of was paralyzed. Um, and so, the idea that things, the outcome would have been the same if the firearm hadn't been there, is is obviously silly. So, so no, so. Uh, um, I, I, when I think about uh, and talk about assaults, um, I usually break this up into a few categories. There's the more common, which is sort of the unplanned, heat of the moment, I'm upset, firearm assault. And then, so and that would be an example of one. And then the other would be, you know, a planned um, a planned out, either targeted or indiscriminate act of violence. Also, it, you know, it matters if firearms are present. Um, you, you know, we hear a lot, well, people just, again, people are going to find a way. They'll find some other, um, you know, they'll use explosives or bombs. Um, I think uh, th- those are actually pretty pretty tricky. Um, what a lot of people don't realize or forget is that, for instance, the Columbine massacre was a planned school bombing. Um, that was the whole plan. I mean, the, the, the um, perpetrators set up explosives that never went off, and the firearms were really there to sort of pick pick kids off as they ran out of the school. Um, and so all of the injuries and deaths at Columbine were firearm-related. They weren't explosive-related. So um, so although, yes, technically we can use other things, other things are harder. Um, so so I'm going to talk a little bit about what happened in Vermont around, around a thwarted school shooting that really changed our governor's mind about um, our Vermont gun laws. So the day after Parkland, the Parkland shooting, our governor was asked, you know, um, do you think we need to have more gun laws in Vermont? We basically didn't have any. Um, and he said, no, we're, t- we're totally fine. And um, the next day, uh, an 18-year-old was arrested with a really credible plan to to, sh- to shoot up his high school um, and weapons and ammunition and, um, you know, equipment and, and plans on how he was he was going to do this. So that he was arrested um, and the affidavit became publicly available. I remember it was a Friday evening um, and I read the affidavit and it was very frightening. Um, and that evening I emailed the executive director of our Vermont chapter and said that, I mean, this is clearly gonna come up. Um, and um, if there's anything at the state house related to guns, like I, I wanna be in there to testify, I was like, you know, put me in, Coach. Um, and so on Monday, so then that Monday, our governor um, had a press conference, and he said, I'm willing to listen, and, you know, I'm I'm willing to consider, like, anything, basically. <laughs> like, that's how – what a, a complete 180 um, this this sort of threat had done. Um, so starting a little bit about, you know, it's helpful to think about where our gun laws were. And at that point in 2018, it's sort of easier just to point out what we didn't have. Um, really, in, in terms of youth access, uh, 16 years was the minimum age to purchase uh, any type of gun bes- besides a handgun. Um, no lower age limit for possession, um, and, and really no no other types of, like, you don't need a concealed carry permit or open carry permit, anything like that. Um, so these were the laws that we addressed and passed in 2018, so we now have expanded background checks to include... Most private sales, although there are a lot of exceptions, um, ban high-capacity magazines, ban bum stocks. Uh, We now have an extreme risk protection order, and we've raised the minimum age to purchase a firearm from 16 to 21. And there were a few other things that we talked about that year um, which didn't get passed. And and then, again, in 2019, we revisited waiting periods and child access prevention laws, which neither of those passed. Um, So... um, when I, so this, I don't know, even know if you can see the date, but this was a week, basically a week after the Parkland shooting. Um, the one bill that was sitting in committee was an extreme risk protection order that, so this is, this is the idea that um, someone could petition, could, could go to law enforcement. Law enforcement would then petition a judge um, to have firearms temporarily removed for someone that is, is um, at high risk of hurting themselves or others. Um, so, so yes, this this is definitely an effective tool that can be used for somebody that might be um, at risk for committing violence. It's also a great tool for someone at risk for suicide. So I, um, so I testified before the committee on this. I actually knew I was the last person to, to testify. they knew they were going to pass it. So I thought, what other, what other. Th- what other things can I ask up for? Um, so um, so my goal, actually in my testimony, was to really to, to address the minimum age thing because I just did not think it was um, made a lot of scientific sense that 16 year olds without any parental involvement can just go and buy any type of firearm and this this young man who had been arrested had started purchasing firearms at the age of sixteen, and they were, they were his you know they're, he owned them they were his firearms, and that was perfectly. Legal, um, so my goal I felt like was was again to um, to tie in that like the risk of impulsivity, especially among young people, especially among young men, access to firearms, and then a temporary crisis. And you know, again, my big concern is suicide, but also that you know is still connected to other acts of violence. Um, so, so I, I talked about the scientific piece behind that, um, but then I found this section in the affidavit that I thought was really incredible. And actually, this is a pretty rare thing, I think, for me to do in testimony, but I actually read a portion to the committee, a portion of the affidavit, where the young man is actually texting back and forth with the young woman, this 17-year-old, who was the one who um, who, who um, said something about um, his, his threats. He was kind of going back and forth about his, his threats to her. Um, another classmate, days before, had also um, told the parent who talked to the police. The police went to his house. He was actually shooting, you know, outside shooting, which is again perfectly fine to do. Um, they were his guns, and so they sort of um, left. And so they're having this discussion afterwards, and this is a text exchange. It's a little bit hard to read, so I'm just going to actually read it for you. So the young woman is is um, noted here as juvenile AM, and she says, don't you need a license to shoot? And he says, not to target practice, to hunt. Yeah, hunting license. Oh, maybe for now you should get rid of the shotgun if people are suspicious, just so you're extra in the clear. Sawyer, no, not at all. This is Vermont. Like, literally everybody has a gun and it's perfectly legal and everything. I just won't tell anybody and I'll lay low about everything, even though I don't plan on doing anything bad. I just don't draw attention to myself. Juvenile, AM, yeah. But what if you get impulsive and want to do something bad? If the gun's handy, you're more subject to make a bad decision. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do this. But, like, this is a 17-year-old doing means restriction, right? Like, this is, like, what we do is we try to make this link so people understand that um, that having that people get impulsive and they you know if they have this this tool this weapon here then that really bad things can happen um, and so my point here is it's wonderful that she's doing this but this is not her job this is not you know th- this is not the job of young people to be counseling each other on means restriction um, and like we could probably do something about that. Um, so, so we were able to raise the minimum age to purchase a firearm, um, with the excep- exception of people taking a hunter safety course, which, um, which obviously doesn't really help w- with with really anything except that. Um, <laughs> except, except that I do think that it does create another step that people have to take, and so it does maybe create some time and space for people. Um, and then the other piece just, just to know is that none of this is ever over. So, um, there, there is an NRA back group that's suing the state of Vermont over the high capacity magazine ban. And so this is in the courts now and something that we are being asked to weigh in on. And this is probably going to drag out for a bit. Um, So one quick—I just wanted to make this quick note. I had to take out all the stuff on federal legislation because we don't really have time for this. But you may know that there, um, the House passed um, a more comprehensive background check bill to close the, the Brady bill loopholes. This is the. Federally Congress, and that it's sitting on the Senate side, which you know they won't ever take it up um, with, with the composition of the Senate right now um, and but one of the arguments is always like well criminals aren't going to follow the laws, so why are we going to tighten tighten restrictions around around this um, when, when someone who's going to commit a crime isn't going to follow the law anyway so um, so af- after um, we passed a bunch of laws that got, our governor actually put together a community violence Prevention task force, which I sat on, and I had to learn a lot about community violence prevention and some of the risk factors around um, around committing acts of violence and what we can do as a community to prevent them. And um, I, so I read this book as, as sort of part of that. And I and the perpetrators of Columbine left behind a lot of of written diaries, video diaries, so we know a lot about their motivations. Um, And I found this passage that I feel like I just, I have to show because I actually was reading it going, (gasps) Um, so, but this is, um, this is the real, the main perpetrator behind Columbine actually writing in his diary about how annoyed he is that the Brady Bill is making it hard for him to get his guns that he needs to kill his classmates. Um, so he's, he's actually writing about about that. He's writing about a federal law and how it's making it harder. Um, and so then he he did sort of for his schoolwork um, <clears throat> look into look into loopholes. Actually wrote a school essay about some of the loopholes and ways to get around to get around the Brady Bill. Um, so you know I think this is just an example again when people say well they're not gonna you know, criminals aren't going to follow the laws. I mean, I think here we have an example of somebody who's like complaining about how the law is making it harder for him to kill people. And I think I, you know, I I do hold the opinion. that I think we should make it hard for people to kill people. Um, So anyway, I I thought that was I, I thought that was really striking when I read it. Um, I, when I testify, I, I don't talk a lot about domestic violence and, and firearms because there are other people in the state who really advocate for this and work on this. But I do think it's important as pediatricians to remember that um, domestic violence is a real problem, and that firearms can be used in the household, um, not just to injure or kill people, but to really manipulate. And one really striking thing we had a, a bunch of public hearings throughout the last couple of years are were um, both men and women um, talking about testifying about being um being a child and feeling and and being threatened by somebody in the home with a firearm um and then women mostly all women talking about being in relationships where they're being manipulated by the presence of a firearm at home so it's remember re- important to remember when we're taking care of families that nobody has to get injured for this to be a problem this was something um that a mom um, in Vermont actually lives right, lived right in right on the border of Vermont, New Hampshire, wrote, um, and I'll read it because it's a little bit hard to read. But she says, "Jason keeps. This is her husband. Jason keeps his rifle on the floor in a in a corner in the open, so he can look at it and mention where it is. So I have to be aware that it's right there, where he can always access it. I feel he might get angry and use it against me if he is angry enough." Um, and she, unfortunately, he. Um, he did stab and shoot and kill her and shot himself. Um, and they had, you know, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. So so these are our, our families that we take care of, are, are, are affected by this. But you can see even before that happened how much how much the, the firearm was being used to manipulate. Um, so moving on to unintentional shootings, um, I didn't show a map of unintentional shooting deaths, um, but the numbers are, are far lower than they are for suicide. But as you would expect states like Vermont, with high gun ownership, are higher than average. Have higher than average um, youth deaths um, and injuries associated with unintentional shootings. Um, we know that many children in the U.S. Um, in in Vermont, it's about you know half of half of the homes have firearms. Um, many of these are accessible. Again, when we had our public hearings about child access prevention, which didn't go anywhere, um, we had lots of Vermonters testifying about how they had to have their firearm at the ready, loaded at the ready to protect their children from, you know, from an intruder. So, so people just really getting up and saying, I need to have this loaded gun ready. Um, so so this, is, this is a real problem, and I, I think a, a, an opportunity for pediatricians um, to talk about Uh, This was a case I had when I was a a fellow. This is actually a a child from New Hampshire um, who found his dad's firearm, you know, in in his room and and shot himself and died. Um, And when this is a national poll uh, about storage practices and, and basically the crux of this is that this is just gun owners So only about a third of gun owners say that they never have a loaded gun at the ready. Um, And it doesn't really matter if there are kids in the home or not. The storage practices don't really seem to change. Okay, so good news is we know actually how to safely store firearms. So this study showed that these four practices of storing the gun locked so preferably in a safe or in a lockbox, if not that, making it um, unable to fire, so with a trigger lock or a cable lock, Um, storing it unloaded with the ammunition stored and locked up separately. Each one of those practices has a protective effect, and all four of them together have an additive effect. So when we talk about safe storage with our families, this is what we say. We want the firearms locked up. Unloaded with the ammunition locked up and stored separately, and so that's there's a lot of um, efforts now to raise awareness about safe storage practices. And these, this is an example of this is and um, family fire campaign that has a lot of posters really talking about about safe storage practices. I'm going to spend just a few minutes talking about firearm safety courses because this is something that parents ask about a lot. So there are a few. Um, A few courses out there, there's the NRA has this Eddie Eagle program, which is kind of a short program that teaches um, school-age children, if they see a gun, to stop, don't touch, walk away, talk to an adult. Um, And then there's a a more comprehensive program called the STAR program, which is a five-day skills-building program that teaches kids how to sort of um, get themselves out of a dangerous situation. They seem like a good idea. I think to the general public because we're pediatricians, we know that they don't work. Um, So this study was sort of interesting because they actually did the STAR program, so that really comprehensive five-day program with these kids. Then at the end of the program, they said to the kids, hey kids, what would you do if you saw a gun? And they, they all said, I would stop, I wouldn't touch, I would walk away, and I would get an adult. And they're like, great, that's exactly what we taught you. Now go ahead and play in that room, and I'm right here if you need me. And um, so they would go into this room where they had hidden and unloaded handgun. And wouldn't you know it, most of the kids found it. And of all the kids that found it, not a single one went and got an adult. Um, Most of them picked it up. Many of them pointed pointed it at their classmate, and many of them pulled the trigger. Um, So I think it's not enough just to just to tell kids and ask kids, what would you do in this situation? Because we know that that doesn't translate se- even seconds later into going into a room. Um, and here's another study sort of sh- sort of showing the same thing. Um, so you understand to my great surprise when I um, <laughs> came home late one night, the night before the house was, our house was gonna vote on the gun package bill, which was sort of the last step when I got an email saying that they were, this amendment was going to be added on requiring all Vermont children to watch the NRA Eddie Eagle program in all schools every year. And um, it was sort of like, you know, like John Stewart's bit on The Daily Show where he would be like, let me just take a sip of water and like read the news. And then he like spits it out, sort of like what happened to me, except <clears throat> it was wine and it was late and I wanted to go to bed. And I was like, oh, God. So no, I had to write up a response on behalf of the chapter about why, even though, again, it was presented as like, this is a great idea, if parents in Vermont, if every parent in Vermont is being told your child every year is getting a firearm safety lesson, this is going to be very falsely reassuring. Um, If parents want to do this on their own time, that's one thing. But we need to be really clear that this is not up to the child. This is not about, I hear so much parents saying, my child knows I taught them they're respectful. They listen. Um, this is not on the child. It should never be on the child or the young person. This needs to be the responsibility of the parent, and the gun owner that the the gun is never accessible to the child. So this this was our point, and they they did actually pull the amendment um, at the last mi- last minute. But I'm sure something like that will come up again. Um, so. We also, uh, this is a campaign um, that's a partnership between the AP and Brady about how we should encourage parents to talk about firearms in places where their kids play. Um, And this is kind of a, you know, I think it's a hard conversation to have, and so exploring that a little more, how we can recommend to families that they talk about this, and so I recommend that we have it in the list of all the things that we talk about. We talk about a lot of stuff about food allergies and pets and you know swimming pools and whether or not there are firearms in the home and I think if for our families that don 't own firearms and, and want to be part of this general discussion around creating an environment of safety. Offering up the information about firearms yourself can just make it this conversation starter. Um, and so I was working with one family on this project and she was excited to show me this um, text that she was sending. We had, um, she was having a sleepover. And so she's like, this is what I started doing. And I started saying, um, just putting it in there. You know, at the bottom, she says, we don't have pets and I don't own any firearms. You know, there are going to be two other girls there and just kind of putting that in there as just like a normal thing that we all talk about. Um, and just trying to normalize this conversation. I, I actually put out on Twitter asking parents about how they have this conversation. <clears throat> My kids are young, so we haven't, we haven't had like play dates yet. And somebody, um, somebody sent me this, this is how she does it. She says, um, I have to ask if you have any farms in your home, no problem if you do want to make sure they are safely stored. Um, so thinking about ways that we can just make, normalize this part of the conversation. <laughs> Um, and then the other piece is like what what other ways can we just really get the message out there that kids you know parents have this idea that like they know kids are going to get into things, kids are going to play with things um, they know they know that that's going to happen, but for some reason they think just not the gun they like we're told not to touch the gun, and then they definitely just like won't touch the gun so like let's talk about the gun as. In the same way, we talk about everything else in the home. Like the kids, if they find it, they will play with it, right? And I thought this this ad campaign was great. And I actually listened to um, an interview with the marketers, and they said, you know, we had this like really tough subject to to um To talk about, and we wanted to start with the universal truth the universal truth is that kids you know if they find it they will play with it, and they said they just like put a bunch of stuff out and just had kids play and just like took photographs of them so they like have they have like all these great um, all these great ads of, um, of of kids playing and and I think part of that is just to say you know we we need this is a universal truth The kids the kids are gonna are gonna play um so, so, that sort of brings us to safe storage counseling. Um, so, I am I'm working on a project right now, working on a s- systematic review on what we know about safe storage counseling, um, especially as it, as it um, um, with regards to children and adolescents. And you're, you're not going to be surprised that um, the, what we have in the literature is that we have a lot of papers asking providers how they feel about counseling, whether or not they do it, and what the barriers are. Um, and so most people think we should be doing it, but most people are not doing it because for a number of different reasons, one being that they were never trained on how to have this conversation. I was never trained on how to have this conversation. And part of the reasons why why we haven't been trained is we actually don't know exactly what works. Um, which I find to be really problematic. So if if you're interested in learning more about this, like right now in this moment, this is probably the gold standard, counseling on access to lethal means. Um, It's great, it's not pediatric specific, um, and it does take two hours. So what I'm working on with um, um, a research partner is developing um, a tool that I think is a little bit easier, um, which is something that's short, um, something that has an active learning component and um, really gets gets to the real practical piece of how we have these conversations. So we reviewed all of the currently available learning modules. I think there are some great um, learning tools out there, but all of them have some flaw. Either they're too long um, uh, or, or they have some other piece that we thought probably wasn't so effective. One of the things that I think that we're skipping in our module is is um, why we should talk about this. I mean, I think there's tons of literature saying why. And a lot of these modules talk about, like, why this is a problem. And I think ours just is going to skip to how, just like, how do we have this conversation? The other thing is, um, what do we need to actually know about firearms to talk about it in a culturally competent way? Um, and and the reality is you don't need to know um, everything. I don't... Own a pool? I have no idea what pH you're supposed to have your pool water at, but I still can talk about pool safety and how to safely secure a pool and keep kids safe from a pool. So, um, so even if you don't own a firearm, you can talk about how to safely store it. Even if you don't know the ins and outs of a firearm, just like we talk about so many other things. Um, but I, there are there are some important pieces we need to know about safe storage, which I, I felt like needed to be included in this, and then real demonstration. Demonstration of scripts. Um, so these are some screenshots of the the um, tool that we have so far. So uh, at the top is um, this is Dr. Steve Leffler, He's an emergency medicine physician um, at UVM and actually our interim CEO. And um, he is a hunter, and so we asked him to had him bring his his firearms into our sim center, which we got permission to do. Um, and um, I was like, no, this will be fine. He's just—he's well, the CEO. Like, it'll be <laughs> fine, <laughs> it'll be fine. Um, so what he does is really, we really just honed in on what, what, what exactly do we need to know and like we're not gonna go too much into this. So how do you secure a pistol versus a long gun? What is, what, how does a cable lock actually work? How does the trigger lock work? What are the downsides of those things? Um, talking a little bit about safes and, and um, lock boxes as well and then we had volunteers so a family that did not own does not own firearms and then a family that did own firearms and how we actually talk about have this conversation um and so we do have some unique scripts that again this is not based on evidence because there is no evidence on how we have these conversations but really based on how do we talk about other things so um, right now, what we're told to do is to say, are there guns in the home? And I felt like that probably isn't the right way to ask the question. We don't say, do you ever miss a medication dose? We say, when was the last time you missed a medication dose, right? So, um I think we need to reframe how we talk about this. And there is unfortunately, you know, some concern among some of our families that own firearms that, you know, we just want to like make a list of who has firearms in their home, which is not the case. So what we really want to get at is, it's not about whether or not you own a firearm. It's, this is, this question is how do you store it? That's what I care about. So instead we say, how are firearms stored in your home? And we don't say, your firearms to the parent, because you might be talking to the parent that doesn't own the firearms, and it's someone else in the house that does, right? So how are the firearms stored in your home? Um, so we're presuming that firearms are present. We're not passing judgment on that piece. It's an open-ended question. We don't want to ask a yes-no question and, and sort of see what they say. And, and another piece, these are sort of small pieces, but no, you know, we don't actively record the responses. Again, to sort of respect the concern that people have about things being sort of, entered into some database. Um, and then we scripted out a few other a few other talking points that I've just found to be helpful anecdotally. Again, I don't know um, on a large scale if it works, but I have had a few people say to me, you know, after I testify, they'll say, um, you know, I have a safe in my home and I keep my guns in my safe. And I say, that's great. And they say, no, but not for the reason you think no one in my house would ever shoot themselves. I do it. So no one steals my guns, which is fine. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. and so I, I've worked that into the script because, and you know, and thinking about the way that we assess risk, um, and understanding for some families, it's really hard and really for any family, it's really hard to imagine somebody in the home might use a gun on themselves, somebody in the home might use the gun in anger against somebody else. Nobody imagines that happening. But oftentimes they imagine some you know, an intruder coming and stealing their firearms, right? And so I think we've worked we've worked that piece into the script. So, you know, have you considered a safe? Because, you know, if you if you store your firearms in the safe, it can prevent people who shouldn't have access to it, from getting access to it, like kids, like visitors, like someone who might be trying to steal your firearm. So adding that piece in, because that piece might be the motivating, that might get them to to store the gun safely. I don't really care what what the motivating factor is. Um, So we have a few minutes left for questions, um, and I'd be interested to hear conversations that you've had with families and Sort of good and bad, and, and how that sort of worked out, um, and and any other questions you have um, on this topic.
1: So, Becca, how do you go through all this work, get all of this information out there, have all these people behind you, and then? Have the governor veto it, and then not just want to go bury your head under your pillow. Like, how do you, how do you keep
2: fighting? Um, so I actually did cry when he vetoed it, but I actually I, I felt so heartbroken for the blacks because they really put themselves out there. I mean, talk about putting yourself out there. Um, I, I do think, really, in the past couple of years. I, I do think that we are still making inroads, and in even these conversations about what are the risk factors for suicide. I, I do think that that having these bills come up and having so so you know you testify, then you know VPR wants me on to talk about suicide prevention, then they want somebody else on to talk about it, then the media covers this. So so it's it's a conversation <laughs> we're having, and it ends in a veto, which is which is frustrating, but. There was a lot of coverage. We had these like roundtable meetings with legislators. Like I, I do think we're getting the message out there, and it can sometimes be a vehicle for for real, like like a PR campaign, really. Um, and that's that's the way I think about it. But it is really really frustrating. I am. Um, uh, the news coverage of the veto. There was a local, the, our local news station, um, interviewed the blacks, and they said they were very disappointed. And then the other person they interviewed was the head of the Vermont NRA group, and and they said the um, the newscaster said, you know, so and so says that um, most suicides in Vermont are not due to firearms. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah, like it's such an easy thing to look up. I actually emailed them, but they didn't post a correction or anything. But, like, you go to the Vermont Department of Mental Health website, two-thirds of suicide deaths in Vermont are due to firearms. So it is so frustrating to, to testify and put the information out there and then have somebody just say, like, straight up a thing that's not true, that's easily, it's like a very objective piece of data to look up. So it is a frustrating conversation to have over and over again, but I think that the fact that we're even talking about this um, statewide and that people are starting to understand, I think will actually save lives. So
3: yeah. so thank you, Rebecca, for a great talk and you've been so helpful to us in New Hampshire with your leadership. I think um Part of your talk about how we need to reframe it as a public health issue and not a second amendment rights issue is so important how we talk with families. Um, I'll try to say um, I'm, I'm not talking about taking your guns away. I don't want to take your guns away, but just like you, I want to make sure that everyone stays safe in your family.
2: Um, so just like
3: just as with automobiles and reducing automobile fatalities, we didn't have a take the cars away campaign. We had airbags, seat belts, um, car seats, drunk driving laws, mm-hmm. seat belt laws, mm-hmm. and we made people safe that way. Um, so th- I just want to say the three bills in New Hampshire that were vetoed, mm-hmm. um, extreme risk protection order, uh, there was a bill to um, allow school districts to restrict guns from schools, um, those were all vetoed. They're going to come back again next year, mm-hmm. there will be some real advocacy opportunities there's a parent group called Moms Demand Action that's not going to roll over and, and let this um, let this go away. So um, we'll be going down to the New Hampshire State House again in January and bringing residents who can get off of um, rotations down with us. Um, so we're not done yet.
2: And I'm happy to share both. So the ERPO laws are are, are across the country have been a little bit more tend to have bipartisan support. And I think there are are angles. Um, it really, it seems like it's the governor in, in your case because it was passed. Unless you, it's either the governor or you need to convince a few more lawmakers so that the veto can be over overridden. But I'm happy to obviously share my testimony and what I've learned because, you know, every time you do this, you testify to whatever si- whatever committee on whatever side. And then you then you learn something from the questions you get asked. And then you perfect it for the next <laughs> for the next side, um, and then sometimes we we come, keep coming back to this year after year. So I'm happy to share all of my experiences in more detail before you guys go. Yeah, we do also
3: have gun locks um, in Molly's place. It's been a terrific project. I see Jim back there, and um, I don't know Deb Samaha from the New Hampshire Injury Intervention, okay. yep. and Dr. Granahan. So, if you see a family and they've got guns and you ask them how do you store them, and there's not really a, an answer, or there's something that you would like them to have more conversation about, going down to Molly's place, they can have a conversation about how to store with a gun lock uh, box and um, actually get one. There's
1: a box in the residence lounge also. They're also in the front close sec- uh, staff area and also exit secretaries. Molly, you can have them for your box. guns. <laughs> You well, hand I was going to say That's that. The the that. To OK, well, we're right on Gene.